Hey, you're listening to episode 52 of Soul Sessions with KK. What do you do when life knocks you down? Do you become a rubber ball, a cement ball, or a glass ball? Me, my dear friend, Rena Gumbo, certified mental health counselor and child specialist. She sits down with me to talk about what it means to be resilient, and it somewhat has to do with rubber, glass, and cement. You'll see what I mean when you listen to the episode. Rena explains why she became a mental health counselor and shares her experience battling breast cancer. She was diagnosed eight years ago and it continues to impact her life and the lives of those around her. This interview was recorded and is being released during a very challenging time in my life, but it gave me the life force and chizuk I needed to continue going on. Thank you, Rina Gambo, for inspiring me with your strength and hopeful attitude. I know that your story will inspire others. This show is dedicated in the merit of the speedy and complete and permanent recovery of my dear mom, Rachel Batchana, and my dear friend, Rachel Batliora. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, I'm back with Soul Sessions with KK, and today I'm sitting here live with someone who is very, very dear to me, who's been there for me through difficult times, through good times, and we work together, and I just thought it would be the perfect opportunity to interview her today. Her name is Rena Gumbo. Rena, welcome to my show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I wanna thank you for helping me during difficult times. I also went through something very personal in the last couple of weeks and you have been there for me. You have been my rock. So thank you for that. And thank you for being here, sharing your time, your expertise, your wisdom. And I really think the audience will gain something from this interview. So I hope so. Yes, they will, God willing. So right now you currently work with me at the same school. And you are a child specialist Mm -hmm. at the school that we work in, but you also have a private practice at home where you treat children, teens, adults, uh, parents, and you deal with all kinds of issues. So I guess what I want to ask you is what inspired you to become a mental health counselor? So I would say from the time I was 10, give or take, um, I used to have a lot of friends and my friends would always come to me to ask for advice. And over time, I guess I just realized that I liked being the person who was able to help solve people's problems. Um, And I just, it felt natural, it felt right to me. And so as I got older and I started taking psychology classes and I fell in love with psychology, that's when I knew that I really wanted to go into a, a helping profession and one where I could work with specifically children, but also adults. Right. Why do you think people were coming up to you and not to like other friends? Was it something that you had naturally? Or do you think it's something that people need to have to be a therapist or a mental health counselor? Um, it's a good question. I, I think I have a giving nature. Something that I sort of pride myself in is that I love to give to people. I think I like giving more than taking. Um, I, I, I learned that from my father. Um, my dad always used to love giving presents more than getting presents. Yeah. And um, 
I just think that I enjoyed being able to give to those people. And I guess people felt comfortable talking to me because it's just an easy give and take. And um, I tried not to judge people, which is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Especially when people are going through a hard time. And so it just, it just followed along naturally. Naturally. Yeah. Beautiful. I started off as a school psychologist in the Board of Education. I worked there for a long time. There were aspects of the job that I loved. I did not particularly love working for the DOE. Um, <laughs> it became very bureaucratic. computer, bureaucratic, <laughs> a lot of report writing, right. and it was taking away from the time that I enjoyed being with the actual right. children or adults. And so when I retired from there, the school where I am now was like the perfect place to yes, the perfect begin fit. again. Yes, thank God. Thank God you're here. We really need you. Um, what would you say are some of the main reasons people come to you? I mean, I'm now I'm talking about adults. Why would adults come to you? What are the main reasons for that? So, to be honest, I think every single person at some point in their lives could benefit from speaking with a counselor. Um, We all hit bumps in our road and we don't know how to proceed. And so talking it out with someone that's not a member of your family, that's not someone who is so close to you that you are uncomfortable sharing personal information, it makes it easier it makes it makes it helpful to be able to sort things out when you go to talk to somebody talk to someone who has an objective perspective who has an objective perspective but also has the knowledge to help you figure out the direction you want to go in right you know being when you're to be a good therapist your job is really not to give the person the answers it's to guide them to find their own answers i love that even when i know in my head what the answers are, I can't tell them they have to figure it out on their own. Right, right. So the last couple of years since COVID, I would say the number one reason people are coming is anxiety. I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> anxiety and, and the inability to feel like they have control because COVID took so much control away from us. And what it did was it took everybody's problems and it just exacerbated them. It just made them bigger. So if you were someone who had social issues before COVID, now they were even bigger. If you were somebody who had marital problems before COVID, now they were glaring. If you were someone who had issues relating with your family, now everybody was stuck together. So it really impacted. If you were somebody who had anxiety before COVID, oh my God, now it's off the charts. So. Everything just got magnified. And um, I've never, in my, in my 20 years of mental health counseling, I've never seen the need the way it is now. And that's what a lot of therapists and public figures are talking about right now, where the effects of the mental health, the deterioration of the mental health of people has been worse than, I mean, that's what people are saying, that it's been worse than COVID itself. So it's interesting, you know, when somebody is sick, if somebody has a fever, if somebody has a severe pain, they seek out a doctor. When somebody is having an emotional issue, they feel like they can handle it by themselves. Right. And I think what COVID has done, or the, the whole past year and a half pandemic, I think it's not only given people permission to seek out mental health 
you know, workers. Yeah, for but sure. I think they recognize that this pain does not have to be inside of you and that there are ways to make it better. Right. But you can't do it by yourself. Right. But that's interesting you say that, Rena, because I do feel like there's a lot of approaches in therapy that their approach is not to make you feel better. Their approach is to just accept your feelings, go through the motions, and in a way, it's to kind of have you just, you know, rumorate. Is that what's the Renumerate. word? Renumerate. Like over. a place to dump your... Yeah, and just to keep talking problems. and talking and talking. And, you know, I see the same people who go to therapy for 10 years and they have the same issues from 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So... What would you say would be a good approach to therapy? So everybody needs their own work. Um, I can tell you my approach. Um, I, I am not a psychoanalyst. I don't go back to the womb to figure out where all the problems came from. Or the inner child. Or the inner <laughs> child. Not that, that's, not that there isn't reason for that. There is. But my approach, generally speaking, is um, it's a cognitive approach, meaning every time I take on a client, I'm working myself out of a job. I am looking to give that client um, goals for themselves, um, skills for themselves, and the ability to be able to manage without me. So... I generally don't see people for more than a few sessions. Some people need to come a little bit longer, but um, when people call and they say, you know, oh, it's so expensive to come for therapy, I say, yes, it is, but you also have to pay because you have to, you have to feel it. Yes, exactly. You can't get it for free because you have to feel it. It's like joining Weight Watchers. You pay to go to Weight Watchers because it has to not, I don't want to say hurt, but you have to feel it in another way. And you want to, you want to make the work worthwhile for you. But as soon as I feel that people can manage on their own, I say, you don't need to come anymore. You can come back for tune-ups. You can come back. You can email me. You can text me. But I'm, my goal is not to see people for a very long time. Not to depend on you. Not to be codependent Correct. on therapies that they always need you. Even 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, your approach is more, I'm going to help you give the skills and goals that you need, and you have to be on your own. You have to learn to be on your own. Correct. And I feel like that's also the highest form of giving. Well, and and my goal is never to make things perfect because we don't strive for perfection. I strive for better. If things are improved, even if they're improved by 1%, I feel it's been a success. And most of the time, especially when I work with parents and I give them ideas for ways to change what they're doing with their children, there's, there's improvement almost, after, almost always after the first session. And so they, they're like, they recognize that they can make changes and it could actually help. Do you think every problem has a solution? So I used to think that everyone could be helped by therapy. I think it was a little bit of a a naive belief. Um, When you become a therapist, you're like, yeah, I'm going to fix everybody. Right. I think there are people who have severe mental illnesses that 
it is very hard for them to make changes. Um, and I think there are people that just are too strong-willed to make changes. I think every problem has, a, if not to totally be fixed, there's definitely ways to improve on every problem, but the person has to be willing to put the effort and the time and the, and the hard work in. What if after the effort and the hard work and the time, this is an unsolvable problem, whether it's someone being sick or, I don't know, like a problem that is just, that is just there and you have to deal with it. What would you say to someone like that? Someone who can't physically, mentally or whatever solve their problem. So for example, um, if someone is living with a family member who is dying, for example, um, and we can't make that family member better, you help the, 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 family, the client deal with the fact that they can't fix it and that they can't always make it better and that we manage despite the fact that we can't always fix everything, that some things happen that we don't like. We teach the children in school all the time. Um, if you want something for snack, a child who wants crackers and they're having bananas, we have to say to that child, I'm so sorry you really wanted the crackers, but we're not having crackers, we're having bananas. At every stage of life, we have to learn that we can't always get what we want. There are certain things that we can't get what we what and we want, we even if we put all the effort, Correct. all the hard work. And that we can't always change things. We can wish, we can hope, but we can't always make our hopes and wishes come true. And, and so the goal for that type of client is to learn to find their inner strength and to learn how to handle the situation that is going to come and perhaps to to spend as much time with the person while they're still alive, making the most out of the time they have left. Wow, it's also an acceptance. And there's a level of acceptance. Level of acceptance, mm -hmm. right. So I'm gonna segue this conversation to something a little bit more sensitive and personal. Um, so you were diagnosed with breast cancer eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Do you mind telling the audience what that was like, um, how you found out, and how you processed that very, very difficult information? So um, I, I, was, I started going for mammograms every six months because the radi radiologist said that I had dense breasts, and so she wanted me to go more often. But it was a regular routine mammogram. And she did a mammogram, she did a sonogram, and she said to me, I'm not seeing anything, but I sense an irregularity. Those were her words. She said, and I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't send you for a biopsy. But she said, most of the time, biopsies are negative, especially since I didn't even really find anything, but I just want you to go. So I went for the biopsy and he did a sonogram at least 35, 40 minutes. And he said, I'm not finding anything. I'm not finding anything. I was feeling much more relieved. 
Were you worried at the time since she told you well, it's not really I anything? I was not really worried, except a biopsy is still a biopsy. And, you, you know, you, you figure, okay, they're, they're looking for something. And after about 40 minutes, he said, oh, I'm finding something very small. I'm going to biopsy that. And he said, I'll, I'll let you know in a few days. And it's just interesting for this part of my, um, my what happened to me. He was a religious man, the person who did the sonogram and the biopsy. Religious Jew. A religious Jew. Lovely, lovely doctor. So I was not so concerned because he said, well, it was very small, and she told me that it's usually nothing. And it was a Friday afternoon when he contacted me, three days after my my, um, sonogram, and he said, I really debated whether to wait until after Shabbat or to call you before Shabbat. He said, but I felt maybe for Shabbat you were going to be with friends and family and it would be helpful to you. It, it is cancer. Wow. So he said, what I suggest at this point is to contact um, breast, breast surgeons to see how they would proceed. He said, you're going to need a breast MRI because we have to make sure that it isn't in other parts of your breast. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time that Friday night crying. I actually got off the phone, had an hour left, called my mother and my brother, did not tell my kids yet. And I actually made three appointments for the following week for breast surgeons. You had enough time before she I called. called uh, yes, I called my gynecologist. She gave me some numbers and I just, I just, they're very, when, when you call a breast surgeon's office and you say, I was just, I just, they just, my biopsy was um, positive, malignant. They're very good about giving you an appointment for that. Right week. away. They fit you in. And then. How did you go into like I have to tell Army you, mode, it's, like it's, right after you heard I, that because diagnosis. I, because it was a Friday and I knew that I needed to set things up for myself because when you have cancer, waiting is the hardest part. So I knew that I needed to Do get myself going. So then Friday night, I was actually eating by my friend and she said, do you want to cancel? And I said, no, 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 I think it's going to be good for me. And I lit candles at home because I was really, really crying. And you know how sometimes the candle- did you cry when you when they first said that word to you, mm-hmm. or only after no. you hung up the phone? No, when when he called me, I went into action mode. Um, it wasn't until I lit candles that I was wow. crying. And you know how sometimes one of the candles is like defective and it goes out right yeah. after you light it. So I lit my four <clears throat> candles and I was crying, 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 and one of the candles went out like. Pfft, and it was like steaming. And I said, no, no, I feel like it's a bad omen. No, this can't be happening now. Like, like, I feel like you're telling me that there's not light at the end of the tunnel. And I was crazed because this candle went out. And I met, my husband picked me up. We went over to our friend for dinner. I believe they poured a lot of wine into my glass that night, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And we came home, and I had told my—I had told them all that I, that I can't believe the candle went out, and it makes me feel like I have no hope, and it's terrible. And we came home, and all four candles were lit. And I said to my husband, you don't understand. The candle was out. It was out. And he said, well, how do you explain this? 
And the wow. only way I was able to explain it was that either Hashem or my dad from heaven somehow wanted me to know that there was light and there not was dark hope. and that there was hope. And from that point on, I felt hopeful. Wow. Now, somebody else would have said, coincidence, it wasn't really out. Oh, my husband said, oh, maybe one of the candles got up and lit the other one. Because <laughs> that would have been really, you know, like, that right. would have happened. Um, and, and from that point on, it was just full steam ahead. It was just, you know, we had to tell my kids. I wanted to tell them in person. One lived in New Jersey. One lived in Manhattan. We took a ride into Manhattan. We told them we were bringing them pizza, that we were just going to be in the city. And we told my son and daughter-in-law. And then my other son was in school in Manhattan. And we told him we were in the city. We were going to pick him up and drive him to Jersey. We made a very nonchalant. And we told, but we wanted to tell them in person. And what I remember, you know, it's very, very hard to tell your sons you have breast cancer. Yeah. And, like, they don't want to hear their mother use the word breast in front of them. Was it harder to tell your children or was it harder to tell your mom? Um, in many ways, it was harder for my mom. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't harder to tell her, but it was harder for her. Because what I kept saying to my kids was, look at me. I'm fine. I'm strong. It's early. I'm going to be okay. You take you take it from me. I'm, I'm, I'm here, and you're going to follow my lead. I guess my mom came from a different place, so it was, it was hard for her. She had yeah. a really hard time. Yeah. Um, and it was hard also because my dad wasn't alive, and she didn't have him to share it with, and that yeah. was hard too. So I went forward. I met with my first breast surgeon. We had four appointments set up at that point and fell in love with her. Her name was Dr. Her name is Dr. Marie Chen, an, a, a Malach. And when we left her office, I said to my husband, I'm canceling the other appointments. I, I don't want anybody except for her. And then I had to meet with plastic surgeon doctors. And I mean, it's, it's a whole process. I had to get a breast MRI. They found two more spots in the same breast. So I knew that I had to lose, I had to have one breast taken out and I made a very conscious decision to have a double mastectomy um, because if I'm going through it, I'm going through it one time. Mm -hmm. I also did something called a deep flap, which is that they didn't, I didn't get implants. They, they took the fat from my stomach and they implanted it into my breast so that my breasts are Naturally. filled with my nice. own natural body. You had to do the surgery first? How did it, what was the order of like the, everything you had to do? The, they did the surgery at the same time. So the breast surgeon, the breast surgery took two and a half hours. So basically the way I looked at it, this is very unscientific. I looked at it that the breast surgeon went in and scooped everything out. And then the plastic surgeon went in and shoved everything <laughs> in. Right. Took it out of my stomach and shoved it into my breasts. That That's sort of the way yeah. I saw it. Um, it was a 10 and a half hour surgery. Wow. Um, and it was done on a Friday because that's when the two of them could coordinate. And so my kids, everybody slept by my house because I live within walking distance of Long Island Jewish. And they, I felt I, I coordinated that. I felt it was very important for them to all be together for Shabbat. My brother and sister-in-law came also. So everyone was there. And... What I remember is 
after the surgery, I guess before Shabbos started, everyone wanted to see me. So they, they woke me after the surgery. I must have looked like horrible. Yeah. I mean, right. white, after horrible, 10 and, ten and, and a half hour, hour surgery. Yeah. And I open my <clears throat> eyes and my entire family is standing around oh my, my bed with their eyes bulging because I must have looked so scary. And, you know, just because they wanted to see me, I don't know why they let them all in. And then about an hour and a half later, two hours later, my husband came back and he walked in and he goes, oh, my God, you look so much better. And I said, oh, if I look better now, what did I look like? He goes, let's just say not so good. And I was in the hospital for a few days and they tell you to walk. And when you've had deep flap, they cut your stomach. I have a scar from hip to hip. And so walking, you walk bent over, but I got myself up. I walked. I did everything I could to make myself better. Wow. And did you have to do anything else preventative? So the hardest part of everything is that it takes about, took about three weeks between when they did the surgery and when they got the results of the, if I would need chemo or not. And that was the hardest three weeks the pain was nothing compared to that. Um, when the I, emotional pain and the anxiety was worse. Awful. Just you just feel like you're just you're just at the top of a cliff, waiting to hear. Because of everything, I was most afraid to lose my hair. Mm. That was a lot of people say that. That was the part that was scariest for me. Yeah. Um, it was Everyone's just, different, right? It was just that I, I I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around it, um, and. Thank God, it was my margins were clean. Thank God, and Thank so I God. didn't need any any um, chemo. I did, however, need to be on medication for eight years, seven years, and the medications were poisonous. They're they help on one hand, and they're poisonous on the other. Mm-hmm. So the medication grew cysts on my ovaries. So seven months after my major surgery, I had to have my ovaries removed. Oh, so I didn't know that. And then they put me on a different medication after that because that put me into menopause. Till then, I was I was young. I wasn't in menopause, so you can only be on t- tamoxifen yeah, until you're in menopause. The tamoxifen grew cysts on my ovaries, so I needed to stop the tamoxifen, but I couldn't stop it until I had my ovaries removed. They put me on another medication, which grew cysts on my uterus, and I said, "No, I am not having a full hysterectomy." And so. We switched to a third medication, which the cysts went away right away, which shows you how awful these medications are. Yeah. Um, it cures one thing, but then it brings another problem. Correct. To something else. And then I also needed um, a few um, re, um, reconstructive surgeries. So within a period of about a year and four months, I had four different surgeries. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. What kept you going? What gave you strength? during this time what was interesting was I had never had surgery prior to this Um, I'd never really been very very sick prior to this what's amazing is you don't know how strong you are until you have to be strong Wow. and as far as I was concerned there wasn't an option you rise to the occasion. You deal with the dysfunction that you're given. I, I learned that when my dad was sick. It was a very hard year and a half, but 
you have to manage it. And so you rise to it. And people, people everywhere were saying, oh my God, you're like the you're the greatest role model. Look how strong you are. Did you like it when people said that to I you? I didn't feel like a role model. I felt like I was doing what I had to do. You had no other choice. That's how I felt. I didn't take any pain medication. Sorry. I took Sorry. no pain medication Sorry. at all. Um, I just, I think Advil, you know, that was it. Um, I walked three days after my surgery. I walked half a mile to Dunkin' Donuts and half a mile back, and I felt like a warrior. Wow. Um, I went to the gym, not, I couldn't go on any of the, um, equipment, but I walked around the gym cause it was cold. My friends and I walked around the gym like three times and then four times. And every day I walked an extra time around so that I can build myself up. And that's wow. what I did. Can I, uh, can I ask you something when you were going through this very difficult time in your life? What were comments that were unhelpful and what were things that were helpful towards you? Let's start with unhelpful. Okay, the most unhelpful was about five months after my surgery, I was at a funeral with a friend of mine. Oh, I know this story. And the person had died of cancer. Yeah. Not not the kind of cancer I had. It was a young woman. It was a friend of mine who had passed away. Um, she had <clears throat> she had a different kind of cancer. And my my friend before the funeral started, my friend friend looked at me and said, "This must be so hard for you because it must bring up all the worries you have about getting cancer." So you don't need to remind cancer patients that they have cancer that they that they even if it's now no longer in them. You don't have to remind us that we had cancer. Um, what you have to do with cancer is you have to put it in a box. You know that you have it. You know that you had it. You know that you could get cancer again, but you can't live thinking about it all the time. So you put yeah, it in a box. define you. And you know that it's there. And how I got through everything is... I'm not going to worry about it. And if it happens again, I will deal with it the way I dealt with it the first time. Right. And what were things that people did that, that were, were actually helpful. helpful that you liked and appreciated? So the most helpful thing is that, like, I had, you know, a food chain for two weeks after my... I couldn't even lift my arms up after the surgery. So for two weeks, every night, one of my, you know, somebody else brought food. That was really, that's really helpful when you're not feeling well. And it was like the highlight of my day was, oh, what, <laughs> what are they going to bring? <laughs> I mean, lots of ziti, but okay, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It's like, what are they going to, what are we going to have for dinner? You know, oh, they called, they're buying it from, where do you think they're going to get? So that was a highlight. Um, one of my friends, I think I told you this, one of my friends brought me a bouquet of lollipops. Yes. And she wrote in Love a card, it. sometimes life sucks. And I still remember it because that was just so poignant. It was so wow. wonderful. Um, and just, that helped you, Rena? Yeah. It validated. Wow. Love that. You want people to validate. This yes. shouldn't have happened to you. You know how many times since the cancer, like, I'll get a really, really bad cold or I got the flu. And I said, you know, when you get cancer, you should be annulled from getting any other illness. Like, there should be like a, <laughs> okay, you already got this. Come on. You shouldn't get something else. 
of course, life doesn't work that yeah, way. Obviously. But um, there's something about being validated, you know? This right. really, it, it shouldn't have happened. It, you were young, you were healthy, you had no cancer in your family. It shouldn't have happened to you. It shouldn't have, but it did. So I could wallow in it, or I could get beyond it. And I chose to get beyond it. And I think what's very important is being happy is a choice. You're not just happy or not happy. Everybody has hard, difficult things that happen to them. And we get to choose how we deal with it. And what I really, really felt when I had cancer was I had no choice about the cancer. The cancer happened to me. But how I dealt with it, that was in my power. And if I didn't use my powers for good, then it, then it took everything away from me. So I had to take control because... Whatever you could control, you were able to do that. Exactly. Do you think being a mental health counselor helped you give you the tools that you needed during your difficult time? So I think I'm a mental health counselor and work with people because I have that kind of strength. Um, But what I will tell you is since being sick and since going through it, I use the chizuk and the strength that I got during that time and I pass that on to my clients. It's as if it's part of your part of your purpose and your mission. Yes. In a way and you went through that. And there's also others. something when you yourself have experienced something and they know it's not just coming, you know, like right. you know, out of your ears. You know, exactly. you know exactly what they're going through and you know what they're you're talking about. You can actually about. empathize with people. And I do. But I don't You always had it, but I feel like after this Well, it's sort of like when I became a psychologist, I worked with children before I had children. Mm-hmm. So I, I love children and I could always work with children, but once I had my own children, it, it related in a different way. 100%. And, you know, I'm, I will understand when someone, whether it's cancer or another illness, I understand how awful it is, but I, I'm not going to let my clients wallow in it because that's not gonna help them get better. Yeah. And your attitude about what you're going through, any hardship you're going through, anything, not just illness, Yeah. your attitude is what you have power over and your attitude is going to get you through it. For sure. But let me ask you something about that because I hear a lot of people say the term you just have to be positive. Be positive. Think positive and it will be positive. But I know they're trying to encourage people who are going through a hard time to, you know, have a good attitude and have a positive attitude. But I find that just telling someone to be positive is not helpful because it's it's invalidating. Correct. You're not understanding the person's experience. And it's kind of like you want to like shut them down and you're, I feel like when someone is telling me to just be positive, they're not saying it for me. They're saying it for them. They're saying it because they're uncomfortable with 
me being in a negative situation or me experiencing a hardship. Mm-hmm. So that it's in a way when I when someone just tells me to be positive, I know they have good intentions, but it's like what you you're like not comfortable with me. Like, who do I have to be positive for? So like, what's what's your say on that? So you can't always be positive. I remember I I used to give myself um, a certain amount of time that I would let myself pity myself, self-pity, and I would let myself cry. I even even remember putting on chick flicks that would make me cry. Ghost is my favorite. (laughs) Oh my God, I love that. Oh my God, I cry so much. Um, So that... I could get it out because the only way through grief is through grief. So you have to let yourself be sad. I don't think you have to always be positive. I think you have to know that you can control your attitude. And you can be negative and 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 it's important for other people to validate that you're in pain. It's important for people to say I see this is so scary. I see this is, what are you going, what's your next step? What's your plan? Having a plan enables people to feel like they have some control. When you get sick, you feel like you have no control. So what can you do to have control? Love that. You you, you have a plan. You have a a routine during the day. You know, uh, you, you make half an hour a day to make sure you take a walk so that you're getting out in the sunshine and in the air. You have a period of time where you can talk to friends and you have a time where you can cry. And it's all It's a time for everything, right. It's all okay. But to just just be negative and wallowing, as you said, all day, that's not going to help either. And just being distracted and always being positive and not allowing yourself the time to also grieve or be upset also isn't going to be effective all the time right but to say to somebody be strong i don't think that's helpful thank you say louder (laughs) (laughs) because people in the back because you can't feel strong when you're not strong so you can say right now you are not feeling strong and you're feeling defeated but there will be a time when you will feel stronger Right. So let's talk about strength. We're going to wrap it up because (laughs) we probably both have to go soon. Um, Speaking about strength, how does one gain resilience? I know it's a hard question. It's It's a a loaded question. It's a loaded question (laughs) because there are people that are born resilient. When I, was, when I was in graduate school, I actually did a paper on resiliency. And the paper talked about three types of personalities. One was a rubber ball, one was a cement ball, and one was a glass ball. And the rubber ball bounced back from any problems. And there are people that are born rubber balls. The cement ball would have the problem hit them and they, 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 they dealt with it, they managed with it, 
but they didn't bounce back the way the rubber ball did. And the glass ball shattered. And I think we have their, their personality type. So I think there is a degree of who you are that's in you. I have had people say to me, well, you know, you're just a positive person. Well, I mean, it's not, you know, nobody's always a positive person. Yeah. You, you work on yourself to focus on the things that are positive about your life. You can't be positive all the time, but you, 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 you work on it. Um, I think when you're, when you're the glass ball or you're the cement ball, you have a harder time climbing back up the hill. But I think everybody has things that are good in their life. And if you focus on the things that are good in your life, that are worth fighting for, it helps you be more resilient. Can one ever become, like, go from a glass ball to a rubber ball? I believe you can, but it does take work. Work. Yeah. Right. It takes work. And listen, there are rubber balls that keep getting knocked down and knocked down and knocked down. And after a while, they're like, oh, my God, what do I have to do to stay up on this thing? Sometimes we just hit bad periods and everything just, and when you're in a bad period, something else happens and it feels worse and it feels worse. And it's like you're already down and you're knocked down again. But you have to believe that you could still control you. Yeah. You still have the power over yourself. Actually, you're the only person you can control. This question just came out of nowhere. I was thinking about it as you were talking about these all these different types of rubber balls, cement balls, glass balls. Um, I don't know how to phrase this question. So there's people who like, yes, they'll bounce through life, they go up and down, but once a major problem is over with, in a sense, they want to feel as if, okay, I just went through a really, really tough challenge. All right, God, or all right, universe, like, mm -hmm. that's it. I've done my share of hardships. So you know that feeling where like, oh, something good has happened, like things are going well right now. It can't go well for too long, mm -hmm. right? You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. Exactly. What will you suggest, I mean, as a general advice, I know this is a podcast, obviously we don't have so much time left, but to people who always feel like the shoe is about to drop, I guess this is some sort of anxiety if you spend your life waiting for the other shoe to drop, you're not living your life. Bottom line, I had a very, very, very close friend who passed away this past year. She was only, she was only in her 60s. And she had- Sorry about that. Thank you. She had Hodgkin's in her 20s. And she chose to not have children even though she was a speech therapist and she worked her whole life with children because she was afraid that because she had cancer in her young life, she was going to get cancer again. And so she chose to not have children because she didn't want to leave them and be sick. And she lived 50 years after her cancer. <laughs> she could have raised children right. and grandchildren and fulfilled the thing in her life that was missing, but because she was always afraid the other shoe was gonna drop, she prevented herself from something greater than herself. Yeah. And the bottom line is, we don't know. If yeah. COVID taught us anything, yeah. it taught Never us know. <laughs> that we don't 
have ultimate control. And the government just no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, you just have to live your life the way you want to live it. And if something happens, you deal with Not it. Not if something happens. When, when something, something happens, happens right. you deal with it when, when it, it comes. happens. That's a, one of the most vital lessons I learned from you. Anytime I approached you when I was like dealing with a situation and had anxiety, you were like, Karen, you'll worry about it when it happens. Right. Don't worry about something that hasn't happened yet. So... Thank you for that. And a lot of people, you know, there's a saying that the things that you worry about are not the things that are going to happen. So, you know, oh, I'm worried that this, I'm worried about that. And then, and then you get blindsided with something else. So what's the point? It's wasted energy. And I know it's hard. It's harder to do than to say. But the reality is we all rise to the occasion when we have to. And don't spend your life waiting for the other shoe to drop. Spend your life living. Spend your life living. Love that. Rena, I could go on and on with you. Obviously, I like, literally, I can go on three more hours with you because you have so much wisdom to share with me and anybody else who's listening. But unfortunately, we do have to end this conversation. But I do have one last question for you. And that is, whoever is listening to this right now and who is going through a hard time or a loved one is going through a very hard time, what's a message you would like to share with them? Um, hard times don't last. Love that. Kamze Yavor. Yep, exactly. We, we, we go through hardship and then things get better. You hit the bottom and then you come back up. They don't last. So when you are suffering, and I know there are a lot of people suffering, know that the suffering will not last. I don't know how long it'll take. It could be longer for some people than for other people, and for some people it is really long, but it will not be there forever. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rena. You're really very welcome. Rena, if someone wants to get in touch with you for either their child or for themselves to come and meet you, where can they reach you? So I have a I have an office in the back of my house. Um, I'm in the book. Are you on Instagram? No. We need to get you an Instagram. I handle. do not want to be on Instagram. I'm not okay, interested. I, I don't even go on Instagram. Don't even. Don't I know. Get I know. Me. I know. Okay, you could do a whole podcast fine, about fine, how fine. I feel about the <laughs> cell phones. Okay, we could do that after. Um, but yeah, I mean, they can just they can look for my number. A lot of people ha- know my number. Um, they can contact me. Okay. That. And if someone needs to reach you and they want your number, they can ask me and I'll give them to them. Yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rena. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and feel free to reach out with feedback and questions. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at coach.kk and check out the link in my bio. Let's connect.